You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. Hey guys. So so we were just talking right before we got started, since it's close to Halloween, we were kind of talking about funny stories that we had, tricks that we had played on people. Carrie, tell me what tell me about your trick that you played on somebody one time. So when I was in college, there was um, there was a group of girls that I was friends with, and we had the one token male friend. And <laughs> the I lived on the the I say first floor, but it, British first floor, so it was actually the second floor. And the zero floor or the ground floor, I should say, was nicknamed the Virgin Vault, and that was it was the only all female <laughs> floor on the entire <laughs> campus. So where'd you get a college, Carrie? At WashU in St. Louis. Okay. Oh, wow. So we, um, group of girls, friends, we had our one token male and he would occasionally do things that we did not approve of. Like at one point, the trick that he played on us was he broke into all of our rooms and stole our underwear, hung it up, hung them up in his room across a clothesline. <laughs> and uh, we did not take kindly to this. So we you had to get sub- him back. We had to get him back. And so <laughs> we took hell. <laughs> an entire thing of tampons and pads and strategically placed them in his room, in his clothes in in his backpack, in his really everything we could think of. And I still remember his face to this day when we had gone to... He happened to be in a choir and he, we went to the Christmas concert and he put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a tampon in the middle of the Christmas choir concert. <laughs> um, because of course, that's what you do. So I always like it when you like stick a, stick your hand in your pocket and you find a 20, but you don't really want to find a tampon, tampon, much no. less if you're a guy. Much less if you're a guy, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what we did, which I guess should have been the clue right then that I was going to eventually become a gynecologist if I really thought about it, so. There you go. That was the tip off. <laughs> what um what sweet and innocent things has your face hidden, Abby? I know that there's a trick in there somewhere. Well, let me just say, when we were talking about this initially, Carrie claimed that she had never played tricks on people, and I'm I'm always known as being the rule follower. I never break the rules, but there are a few times when I did. And my story also was from college. Um, we had a friend of ours who same thing. She played a trick on us, and she was just a hilarious person anyway. And so my roommate and I decided that we were going to get her back. And so we were sitting there on a Saturday night in our dorm room with nothing better to do. And so we came up with this idea of popping a bunch of popcorn. So we bought popped and popped and popped just bags and bags of popcorn. (laughs) And our dorm was the facing of the door was really wide. So the distance between the wall and the door, there was like probably about three inches of depth there. And so what we did is she went to bed really early at night. So we always stayed up late. So it was a Saturday night. So we kind of went sneaking down the hall. We took paper bags actually, and basically papered the door up to the, to the very top. And so there was just a small opening at the top of the door. So we were trying to be really quiet. So we were pouring popcorn, these bags of popcorn down in her door. So we kept pouring. So the door was like 
full of popcorn. <laughs> so the next morning we were up early. And so, um, so we went to eat lunch. And so we thought, well, we'll just walk by and see if Terry's opened her door yet or anything. So we go by and her door is completely perfect. There's not a, not a bit of popcorn anywhere. The door is just completely, you know, she's completely taking everything down. So we thought, well, we'll just knock on her door and just start talking to her. So we knocked on the door and she invited us in and, you know, acted like she had no idea of anything going on. And so we all just started talking and we were just talking about something that was going to happen in school the next day. And then she brought out this just giant, like, wok of popcorn. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I just pop some popcorn, but you guys like some of this. And so anyway, she, she kind of knew it was us. So we all started giggling. So it was kind of funny. <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. So Susan, what about you? Do you have any funny stories? Um, I... I am usually more the person who gets tricked than the tricker. (laughs) (laughs) So have you been tricked then? Like little things, not anything. I can't think of anything huge. My, um, so I, I am not, I appreciate nature, but when it comes to plants, like (laughs) I'm, I'm relatively clueless. You know, I, I, I think you're like, you didn't major in biology, I'm guessing then, huh? I'm majored in biomedical science, but when it comes to like (laughs) keeping plants alive or anything like like that, it, you know, I'm the person who like the further away I stay from it, the more likely it is to survive. See, your kids and your pets are alive still, right? Yeah. All of my children and pets are still alive. See, my theory is that I love plants and I have plants in my office and at home. And I sort of joke about, well, if I couldn't keep my plants alive, you probably wouldn't want to see me as a physician. So, so, but that didn't apply to you, Susan, just to me. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, my patients talk. And I think that's the reason my, my, my dogs and my children still like are, are surviving. But when I was in medical school, we lived in um, some duplexes and there were four of us who happened to live really, really close together. And one night, um, three of the girls were studying at one house and I was studying by myself. And um, so they um, came up with this letter that they, um, essentially they, they wrote this letter from the PPS, which was the Plant Protection Society. <laughs> essentially like chastising me about like the care of my plants and (laughs) I was going to have these fees and everything like that. I mean, they had like gotten a letter and like they had put a stamp on it. And of course I didn't pay attention. They were like, Hey Susan, we got some mail for you. And I was like, okay, I come over to like chit chat and visit for a little bit. And I didn't notice that didn't have a postmark on it anyway. So I opened it up and I'm like reading this whole thing and I'm like so confused and finally realized it was a joke. <laughs> Needless to say, I actually held on to that letter as a souvenir because it was, it was so funny. I mean, it was cute. It was fun. You know, I, and, and I recently took a snapshot and sent it to the three girls that were in our little group and, it was, it was a nice memory. And, you know, like I said, I, I admit when it comes to plants, you know, I, I love the house I live, I live in right now because I came into like a mature yard. So like it was all done. That's the best thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we have a very special guest. Um, she has joined us one other time. Her name is Dr. Amy Jones. She officially is a scientific director of Ovation Fertility. And so specifically, she is really our go-to person at Ovation for all things genetic. So she knows how to do all that stuff that you read about uh, in the newspaper and all the really cool, neat things that we can do to help bring about fertilization and to find out if our embryos are normal or not. So Amy, tell us what you're going to talk about today. I think we want to talk about how 
the use of technology specifically as it relates to genetics can help people get pregnant and have a healthy live birth. Very cool. So PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy or the abnormal number of chromosomes is probably the most common thing that that we do when we're testing embryos. I mean, there's a whole host of stuff that we can look at embryos for, but that's the most common one. And what's what is the most common scenario that we would see that for that you would say it's really helpful for a patient? Um, well, I actually prefer the uncommon scenarios, but we'll talk about the common scenarios. You got to tip a toe in before you push the whole person in. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you go through IVF and you have um, four blastocysts and you just randomly choose one to transfer um, and then you become pregnant and you miscarry. Well, you've wasted that amount of time when you could be, instead of transferring an embryo that we know will not give you a healthy live birth, you could test the embryos, freeze them, and come back through for a frozen embryo transfer that will have a better chance of resulting in a healthy live birth. So in this situation, I think what you're saying that you have multiple embryos PGTA can serve as a useful way of figuring out not only which ones, you know, we already know which ones look the best based on what our embryologist tells us, but which ones chromosomally have the best chance of giving us a baby, right? That's right. So I have a question. You have a young, healthy patient. So say I'm 25 and I'm going to go through IVF. Why would I want to do genetic testing? I mean, don't 25-year-olds have a lot of genetically normal embryos? You know, we see rates as high as 50, 60, 70% um, abnormal embryos in in younger patients. Uh, Not all patients, but if you happen to be that patient and it takes you, you know, four or five FETs, if you have a lot of embryos before you find your normal one, it's definitely worth the, the time and expense to do PGT. So sometimes I know people are really concerned. You mentioned the expense of PGT. So Mm -hmm. um, kind of speaking from your perspective, how much does adding PGT to an IVF cycle run just as a general ballpark, knowing that we have differences across the country and that type of thing? Right. So three to 5,000. And how much would you say the average frozen embryo transfer costs? Oh wow, it's been a while since I've looked at those fees. Uh, <laughs> three, three to five thousand, probably. Also, yeah. So essentially, if we have multiple embryos, and say we have a fifty-fifty chance of picking a chromosomally normal embryo, and the fifty percent chance that we've ch- chosen abnormal, we could have already paid for PGT and then known directly for all of your entire cohort of embryos which ones are going to give you your best chances. Yeah, exactly. And I think the data also supports that pregnancy rates and uh, live birth rates are better with frozen embryo transfers. Patients do better, embryos do better in a uterus that's prepared for a transfer as opposed to an egg retrieval. So why, why do you think that is? Well, you could probably explain that piece better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> so why is that, Susan? <laughs> so... 
kind of the, the simplest way to think about it is when everybody's going through those IVF retrievals, your hormones are going crazy. And, and those hormones, specifically progesterone, end up at higher levels than what they are ideal for creating the best environment for implantation. And if we can come back in a frozen embryo transfer and have very tight control over kind of the hormonal environment, we thereby get better chances of success. So Amy, you said that you were more interested in the unusual causes and the unusual benefits. What are the more unusual things besides besides the obvious of you have a 41-year-old woman who's going through and doing PGT because she she has a higher likelihood of having abnormal embryos and she wants to avoid a Down syndrome um, child or a pregnancy that's going to inevitably end up in miscarriage. So We've got got the obvious, but what are the less obvious reasons to do PGT? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's that the conversation that you have with the patient who's coming through, who knows they want to have, let's say, two or three kids, and they are thirty-five years old, um, younger or older, either one. And if they come through and they produce maybe two, three, or well, let's say three or four blastocysts of those two or three are normal, Um, they have a transfer and it's successful. Okay. So they, they carry that birth to term and now they're a year older. Maybe their ovarian reserve has diminished and the two embryos that they have in storage are abnormal, but they didn't know that on the front end. So they waste more time transferring those embryos and all of a sudden they're 37, 38 and they have a you know much higher chance of producing abnormal embryos and a lower ovarian reserve. So I think those are the patients that I think it's important to reach them. It's important to have that conversation up front um, and sort of frame it as IVF is such a huge investment and one cycle might not do it. So you need to be prepared that it could take one or two or three cycles before you have enough to produce the family that you have envisioned your whole life. Um, And so if you don't have that conversation, then the decision will be made downstream and you, you know, you can't reverse that. So one of the kind of along that theme, um, the theme in my clinic this week, and I was telling my residents this because I, I was my patients have been teasing me that I've got my little ducklings behind me because I happen to have three residents in my clinic with me this week. But um, <laughs> the the theme of my clinic this week has been translocations. And what that means is that instead of having 46 chromosomes, they're paired off nicely. We have the 46 chromosomes that are stuck together in an abnormal way. And, and these patients didn't happen to know that because they're balanced translocation. So they have the total aggregate amount of chromosomes that they need. And they are, as it's called, balanced. But what that means, and in the case of this this one particular patient, she came to me with the intent of saying, I don't want to get pregnant right now. I'm 35 years old. We want to have a baby in the future, but um, abortion is not okay with me. Like I would absolutely not have terminate a pregnancy for Down syndrome, but I really would like to avoid that if at all possible. And so we want to do IVF with genetic testing. Okay, fine. So we did the IVF, we did the PGT, and her embryos came back. 
And the PGT testing came back as suspicious for a translocation because they both had this really unique set of, of missing one chromosome, gaining another chromosome. And they were what's called reciprocal. So matching, you know, where there was one, they were missing the other and, and vice versa on the opposite one. And so um, the brilliant geneticist that at Amy's lab put a lovely little note that says, hey, pay attention to this, for which I am always <laughs> grateful when I see because if they write me a note, I listen. Um, and that patient ultimately went on to go do a total of four cycles. She got 10 embryos, but of those 10 embryos, only three were good. Um, the other seven, one had Down syndrome, the other six all had that translocation. And and we never would have known because the embryos themselves are beautiful. Like you look at them and they're textbook gorgeous. But when you look at their genetic testing, they're not. And it would have been, we would have been a couple of years down the road before we realized that if if she hadn't opted to do that testing. And I've got another patient with a very similar story, young, healthy, 10 embryos, but in her case, eight of them are bad. And we should really track uh, how many we catch because... There's, I mean, quite a few of those letters that we send out attached to reports. Yeah. Well, it's got implications for the kids too. Like the other patient that I saw this week, she, the only reason she came to me um, was because her grandmother had told her, yeah, there's something in our family. We're more prone to Down syndrome. You need to, you need to look into this when you're ready to have babies. And she didn't know any more than that. But that story alone was enough for me to know what testing to order. She's got a Robertsonian translocation that makes her extraordinarily prone to Down syndrome babies. And wow! And so it means that not only can I help her to have a healthy child, but I can tell her exactly, you know, when your kid is of age, this is what you tell them. And this is what they need to be tested for. Because if they carry this translocation, they're going to need to have to consider doing this testing for their babies too to avoid passing it along. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, have you guys seen a shift in patients who approach you about this type of testing versus 10 years ago? In my practice, almost everybody, there's there's a few exceptions, but almost everybody does PGTA in my practice. And I know that varies from practice to practice. There's some practices that don't do hardly any. Um, I generally pose it as we are, we are gathering more information. And like, like we talked about earlier, I talk about, you know, if we're, if we're wrong one time and we select one embryo that would have been chromosomally abnormal, you would have paid for the PGTA. I, I think that, you know, the nice thing is I think PGTA is one thing that hasn't really increased in price and um, may have um, decreased some over the past 10 years. Um, I think the accuracy, I think we trust the data more than ever. Um, now, the data we get now is can be a little more confusing because as we've gained information. Now we add information about mosaicism and, and things like that, that I didn't worry about 10 years ago because we, we, we honestly didn't know we needed to pay that much attention to it. Um, but I think there, I, I always consider there's power in knowledge and, you know, some people choose not to have that knowledge and that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I think that, um, there's, there's definitely some benefit. Um, I, I, I think the hardest conversation I have with patients with PGT are the people who go through an egg retrieval. They end up with one embryo on day three, if we're still looking at day three. 
And, you know, those are the people that are like, I have one embryo. Do I test it? Um, I, I know what I say, but, but Amy, what are, what are your thoughts from kind of the lab standpoint of that one embryo on day three, if you're looking at day three? I think it's definitely worth testing because if you don't test it, then you're going to pay for a thaw and a transfer. It's abnormal. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely think it's worth testing. So I have kind of one other question before we close, because we kind of jumped right in and we kind of all know that of the gametes involved, both sperm and egg, that unfortunately for us females, that the egg is kind of usually to blame for aneuploidy or for the abnormal number of chromosomes. So can you speak a little bit to the physiology of us females and why that's the case? And kind of, we alluded to it earlier, but kind of the difference in age, if you're 25 or 35 or 45 in terms of your chances for aneuploidy. Yeah, I actually have um, the combined ovation stats for different age groups. If you'd like me to go over some of that. Yes, please. Yes, that'd be awesome. How many questions? There are a few questions there. So, <laughs> so tell me why being female makes it more likely for you to be or for your egg to be the reason why the chromosome number is imbalanced. Why does it not? Why does the sperm not do that usually? Well, the sperm are reproduced every seventy days or so, and eggs. We, I mean, the theory seems to go back and forth, but right now, I think that everyone's somewhat in agreement that we're born with all that we're going to have, regardless the eggs are sitting around in our bodies for longer than sperm are. And um, I mean, there's pretty complicated mechanisms that contribute to chromosomes getting sticky, but basically they just don't separate like they should. So, so let me interrupt. So when I go to ovulate, the egg comes out and all of a sudden, correct me if I'm wrong, but it has to get rid of half of its chromosomes, right? So it can join with the sperm. Yeah. That's kind of the issue, right? Doesn't happen so well. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, so when you get that HCG shot and you're going through IVF, that causes the little communications that are sticking into the egg to pull out. And that tells the egg to extrude its first polar body, which is that extra set. And then it has another extra set to get rid of once it fertilized. So if it gets rid of too few or too many and the sperm joins with it, then the embryo itself ends up having too few or too many chromosomes, correct? That's right. Amy, once in a while, I have patients who really want kind of proof. Did did this happen because of the sperm or because of the egg? Where Where is the technology on that? Um, so we're getting closer. Uh, we would have to have parental DNA to be able to do um, investigations. The limitation really is how we amplify the DNA. It's a pretty blunt mechanism for amplification, Um, but I'm, so it makes it harder to ferret out that kind of specific information, but I'm hopeful that this new technology that we're looking at now will enable us to um, look more closely at a lot of things, including discerning the difference between uh, balanced and normal translocations, um, potentially looking at epigenetic mechanisms. I mean, that's downstream, but um, there's, you know, as you know, technology and genetics moves quite quickly. And there's always exciting things going on in fields that don't have to look at such tiny amounts of DNA. So we have to sort of take that and then scale it way down to the amount of DNA that we have access to. And 
because we have to amplify the DNA. Again, it's just a kind of a blunt mechanism that makes the information not as interesting. But as the technology becomes more precise, we can look more closely at So it is something perhaps in the future. That's right. Okay. So now that we've interrupted you and asked six other questions, in between the first question we asked you, what are the general aneuploidy or abnormality rates if you're in your mid-20s, mid-30s, mid-40s? So ovation data, uh, I've got it right here. So less than uh, 35, we're looking at around 60% of your embryos should be um, normal or euploid. So not an euploid, but euploid. Um, And then when you get around the mid 30s, you know, it's 50%, 38 to 40, 40% over 40. You know, it's just, it starts to to trail off 20%, 41 to 42. And then over 42, you know, you have a, a real risk of, in any of these age groups, you have a risk of having no euploid um, embryos. We appreciate your time today and to our audience. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and thank you so much to Amy for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll Thanks see y'all next week. Me. Bye everybody. Bye everybody. Bye, everybody.